All right, I'm curious. How do you feel about Christmas? There's different feelings about Christmas, right? We come at this with different attitudes. So let's make a spectrum of like movie characters. Are you more like, say, Buddy the Elf? Like, totally wild about Christmas. Gaga for Christmas. Every snowflake, every decoration, every carol, every glass of eggnog is like just totally cheer and joy and like you can't imagine anything more magical and special than Christmas. So that's one end of the spectrum, right? Buddy the Elf. Don't answer yet. Just keep this in mind, all right? Buddy the Elf. Let's say a little bit more in the middle of the spectrum is like Ebenezer Scrooge, right? He's like, he's not like, he doesn't hate Christmas. He doesn't care. He's just kind of disinterested. The whole thing is just kind of humbug. Much ado about nothing, right? Why? What's all the fuss? I don't really care about Christmas, right? Just kind of grouchy. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the Grinch, right? The Grinch hated Christmas. Gotta find a way to kill Christmas, right? Christmas has got to go away. All of the sounds and the lights and the songs and all that kind of stuff, like, just can't handle another moment of Christmas cheer, right? All right, so Buddy the Elf on one end, Grinch on the other. I want to see a show of hands. How many of you would say you're more like Buddy the Elf? Let's see. Like, love Christmas. Most of you. All right, so it's going to take some bravery to be honest here. Do we have any Grinches in the room? Just can't handle All right, Jeremy is the lone, honest voice. <laughs> I appreciate you, man. I'm glad you're here. All right, so we got at least one Grinch in the room. Nobody else is going to join him. Nobody else hates Christmas. All right, maybe some Scrooges, maybe like, I don't know, just kind of too much hullabaloo about not anything that really matters that much to me. All right, all right. So we got a couple of like maybe iffy Ebenezer Scrooges. All right, I saw that. I saw those hands in the room. So we have different responses to Christmas, right? And probably for a variety of reasons. So like for the Buddy the Elfs in the room, you know, the, the music and the movies that you got to watch every year and, and the decorations and the traditions and the treats. Uh, maybe it's things like the mem- memories of, you know, family gatherings and time together with loved ones. So it could be things like that that the season kind of conjures up in your mind. And then on the other end, if you're more like a Grinch, you know, like our good friend Jeremy here, I love you, man. Uh, if you're more like a Grinch or you have, or kind of a Scrooge, just like not sure this is a big deal. Maybe it's, more tri- maybe it's trivial things like get tired of hearing the same songs over and over. There's like 10 Christmas songs and like a kajillion arrangements of them, you know. Um, maybe it's, uh, you know, having to buy gifts for people. Maybe it's the super busy December schedule because everybody's got to have their party. You know, there's an office party and a church party and a neighborhood party and a in-law party, and everybody's got their party, and they want your time, right? So maybe it's things like that, um, but maybe it's, maybe it's deeper things. Maybe your, like, hesitance or your kind of, like, grinchy, scroogey feelings about Christmas are kind of a window into deeper hurts or deeper issues. Maybe lost loved ones, and coming to Christmas reminds you that that loved one's not here. Maybe your family's not together the way you want them to be. I wish we could all be in the same place, but it's just not going to work out. Um, Maybe it's disappointment over unfulfilled expectations and Christmas and the traditions just bring all of that back to you. Like Things just didn't work out the way I expected or the way that I wanted. Wherever you fall, right? Wherever you fall on that spectrum, from Buddy the Elf to the Grinch, I want you to hear today very clearly, Christmas is good news. 
Christmas is good news. Not just good news, but good news of great joy. That's what the angels said when they appeared to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem. Good news of great joy for all people. Right? That's a pretty high level of joy and a high scope of joy. But not because of songs and movies or family gatherings or even the eggnog. Right? The joy of Christmas, the good news of Christmas is way bigger than all of that and way better than all that. You see, Christmas is good news because of an ancient prophecy that was fulfilled in a little town in the region of Palestine called Bethlehem. The prophecy went thus, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Uttered by the prophet Isaiah somewhere around 700 B.C., the prophecy was fulfilled seven centuries later in the birth of Jesus Christ. And the world has never been the same. You see, Christmas changes everything. Christmas changes everything because that name, Emmanuel, means God with us. God with us. Today we'll look together at Hebrews chapter 2. If you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in chapter 2 today, reading verses 10 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2. And in these verses, written by an unidentified first generation follower of Jesus, we will learn four things that God with us means. Four reasons, if you will, that Christmas is good news. Four reasons that God with us changes everything for us. We'll learn those, these four things from Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. So join me, just follow along with your eyes as I read aloud Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 18, and then we'll kind of unfold these verses together. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. God, we ask for your guidance. We ask for your illuminating Holy Spirit, Lord, to give understanding to our minds and softness to our hearts, Lord, that we might hear from you in your word. 
and respond in worship and obedience in Jesus' name. Amen. Four things that God with us mean for us. Number one, God with us means you have a perfect Savior. You have a perfect Savior. And we see that in the, at the very beginning of this passage, verse 10. It was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, that's God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now that's an interesting phrase. So the founder of salvation is Jesus. That's the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the founder of their salvation. And the writer of Hebrews tells us here that the Father is making the Son perfect through His suffering. Now, we need to be careful uh, not to think of there being some deficiency in God, some lack in the Son of God Himself that had to be sort of shored up somehow. Uh, so certainly, and this does not indicate a deficiency of character on the part of Jesus, anything less than total moral purity and righteous perfection. He's not being perfected in the sense that he had some flaws and mistakes and sins that needed to be kind of worked out. That's not what it means here when it says that he's being perfected. In fact, the words made perfect could probably be better translated made complete. So the Son of God uh, the founder of our salvation, being made complete in his role as our Savior uh, through suffering. So again, there's nothing lacking in the Son of God regarding his holiness or his purity. What is lacking in the author's mind is a human experience of perfection and obedience. Because the Son of God was in heaven, and he was God. And there was no human experience of perfect obedience. Because we had messed it up, right? God gave us the law. God gave us dominion over the world. And he said, take care of it and do what I say. And how long did that last? Not that long, right? By Genesis 3, it's messed up, right? We've got the tree and the fruit and the snake and everything is gone awry. It didn't take very long for humans to goof the whole thing up. So where God had set a standard, where God had given a call exercise dominion over the world, we'd messed it up. So there had been no human being that had perfectly lived out God's righteous standards and God's holy law. We had all fallen short and messed it up. So in other words, in order for the Son of God to become the perfect substitute for sinners, the one who would stand in for us, in order for the Son of God to become the perfect sacrifice for sin, he first had to become human and carry out that obedience and fulfill that law as a man. So God, the Son, becomes a man so that he could do what we could never do, so that he could fulfill what we had failed to fulfill. That song that we sang a minute ago says that he uh, conquered where we had failed. And that's exactly uh, what Jesus came to do. Because you see, no one had achieved this. There had been no one to offer a perfect sacrifice for sin because there had been no one to perfectly obey God's law. So even if somebody were feeling generous and volunteered themselves to 
you know, bear the, the, the sins of people and be a sacrifice, you know, I volunteer as tribute, if anybody felt that generous and put themselves in that place, they didn't meet the standard because they themselves were sinners. There had never been a sinless, perfect human being that could stand in as a representative for all humanity. And so Christmas tells us that God did it for us. God brought himself into our messed upness, into our brokenness, into our darkness. This is what Christmas means. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, the Son of God was coming into the world as a human being, fully God, fully man, to grow in wisdom and maturity, which is kind of mind-boggling to think about. But the Son of God, the Bible tells us in Luke 2, grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He learned. He grew. His understanding and wisdom developed as he grew. He came to honor God and follow his commands completely and to take up our sin and shame and carry it to a Roman cross, an instrument of torture and execution. Christmas changes everything because it answers our greatest need. A Savior, a substitute, a sacrifice. And Jesus Christ came to be that Savior for you. So Hebrews 2 tells us that God with us means that you have a perfect Savior. There is one who has gone before you and fulfilled the righteous commands of God that you failed to hold up. And he did it in your place. He obeyed on your behalf and was perfected, if you will, as a human being. You have a perfect Savior. God with us means you have a proud brother. You have a proud brother. I love this. Check this out. In verses 11, uh, verse 11, it says, He who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, who are trusting in Jesus for salvation. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. That is, they're from the same family. So Jesus, the sanctifier, and the sinners who are being sanctified by trusting in Jesus are from the same family. And there's two ways that that's true. There's one, one of those ways is simply that because we are flesh and blood and Jesus partook in flesh and blood, which he tells us down in verse 14, that he partook of the same things, then we're a part of the same human family, all right? So Jesus is a human being just like we're human beings, all right? He's fully human. He's not some quasi-semi-half-human, like half-human, half-God. That's not Jesus. Jesus is all the way human, while being all the way God and being one person. So this is divine math that sort of uh, blows our minds, but that is the truth. So he's a part of the, the larger human family of which we're all a part because we're made of the same stuff. But there's a deeper way, there's a deeper unity, a union that we experience with Jesus in that because we are being sanctified, that is made holy through faith in Jesus, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. The New Testament tells us that, that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God, and by the Holy Spirit we cry out, Abba, 
Father, right? So we are a part of God's family along with Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. So you've got God the Father who has his Son, Jesus, and he adopts those who trust in Jesus as his sons and daughters. And so we are brothers and sisters with Jesus. We're in the same family with Jesus. Whoa. And here's the better news. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed to call us sisters. You know that certain family member? You know the one I'm talking about? Like he's, maybe you only see him at Christmas and family reunions. He's kind of weird. He's always ranting about politics or the latest fashion trends. If you're sitting next to yours, just keep looking ahead. Don't give yourself away. Um, Everybody has one of these guys, right? So everyone sort of, sort of rolls their eyes when he starts talking like, yeah, that's Uncle Louie or whatever it is, right? Everybody's got somebody in their family that they're kind of like a little embarrassed about. And if somebody asked you if you're related, you wouldn't flat out like disown him or deny. No, 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 I don't know anything about him. You'd, yeah, yeah, he, he is in my family. But there'd be a little bit of embarrassment. And you'd rather kind of keep your distance at a party. You know what I'm saying? Everybody's got somebody like that in their family, right? That's not how Jesus feels about you. Jesus is not embarrassed that you're in his family. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've trusted in him for salvation and he has become that perfect sacrifice for you, he's not embarrassed by you. He's not ashamed of you. Look at this. Uh, this, The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 22 in verse 12. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, Psalm 22, we don't have time to go there and hang out there, but Psalm 22 is one of the most powerful messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. It's a psalm that really goes into the details about Jesus' crucifixion with even phrases like, and, and, and prophecies about no bones in his body being broken and all kinds of stuff. And you could walk through that and see, wow, Jesus on the cross really matches this, uh, this psalm and this prophecy. But the psalmist cries out in anguish in this psalm, pleading with God not to forsake him. Do you remember Jesus saying on the cross, why have you forsaken me? But it ends, Psalm 22 ends with this verse, with this confident declaration that in the midst of the congregation of God's people, he will sing God's praise with his brothers. And the author of Hebrews places the words of the psalm into the mouth of Jesus as though Jesus himself is saying of us that he will stand in the presence of God in our company and gladly proclaim the praise of God. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed to acknowledge us in the presence of God the Father. Do you know that's how Jesus feels about you? He's not ashamed to be in the same family as you. He's not embarrassed by you at parties. That's not how Jesus feels about you. He will stand in the presence of God Almighty, his arm around your shoulder, and say, this is my brother. This is my sister, and I'm proud of him. That's how Jesus feels about his brother's and sisters. And when we've placed ourselves into the family of God by faith, just trusting him, as 
John 1.12 says he gave us the right to become children of God. Jesus says, you're my brother, and I'm proud of you. Not ashamed. So God with us means you have a proud brother. Jesus is your brother, and he's not ashamed. So God with us means that you have a perfect Savior, and that you have a proud brother. The third thing, God with us means you have an empty grave. Got to look forward a little bit for that. But you have an empty grave. We see these, this in verses 14 and 15. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is of flesh and blood, of humanity, that, that is so that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death. So the children in verse 14 is us. The children had flesh and blood, and so he partook of the same things. He became a human being. The Son of God became a human. And I love it when you have a phrase, the little phrase, that, or so that, because it tells you what was on God's mind when he did what he did. And so this tells us right here that the Son of God partook of flesh and blood, became a human being, so that through death he might destroy the power of death. Why did he partake in flesh and blood? To die. That's the reason that he came to earth as a man. Because God can't die unless he becomes a human being. God doesn't die. That's part of what it means by definition to be God is I live. Existence comes from me, right? I have life in myself. I always was. I'll always be. There's no end to God. You can't kill God. The only way God can die in any sense is if he becomes a human being. And so God the Son takes on human flesh and nature to die so that he can die because he can't pull us out of the hole unless he jumps down there with us. Going back to the story that I told last week from the West Wing. The guy in the hole, and the doctor walks by and throws a prescription down, and a priest walks by and throws down a written prayer, and then a friend walks by, and he jumps into the hole with him. And he says, what are you doing? Now we're both in the hole. And he said, yeah, but I've been in the hole before, and I know how to get out. I know the way out. That's what Jesus did, and he can't, he can't pull us out of the hole unless he comes down into the hole with us. So he took on human flesh in order to die. That's the reason that he came. Have you ever loved someone enough that you would be willing to die for them? Consider this. The Son of God became a human being for the very purpose of dying so that he could deliver us from death. Romans 5, 6-8 through 8 expresses this. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. So maybe there's somebody out there that would go, yeah, I'm willing to die for someone that's a really good person and worthy of it. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came into the world as a human being to die, and he did that not because 
we were so lovely and worthy and had it all together and just needed a little hand to get up. He did it when we were his enemies. He did it when we were rebels and against God and alienated from him. While we were still sinners, God, the Son, partook of humanity to die for us. This is incredible love. I hope that Christmas reminds you of this beautiful truth. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There may be no deeper, more profound truth than that. Jesus loves me, and he gave himself up for me. So he takes on humanity in order to die. We're still getting to the empty grave part. So that through his death, look in the middle of verse 14, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So through his death, Jesus destroys the devil. So the writer here identifies the devil, Satan, that great ancient foe who took on the form of the serpent and deceived Adam and Eve in the garden and all that stuff. And he's been working against God and against his people from that time, right? The devil is the one who has the power of death. Not in an ultimate sense. God is sovereign over life and death. Nobody has power greater than his. But in this kind of earthly broken realm, the devil is the one who wields death and he brings it to your door or he frightens you with it or he he threatens it. The devil's the one with the power of death. Here's the thing. We've been trying to defeat death forever, right? That's why medicine exists. The whole medical profession exists because we're trying to figure out a way to stave off sickness and illness and disease and try to make ourselves last just a little bit longer. If we could have destroyed death, if we could have figured out who has the power of death and done away with him, we would have done it a long time ago, don't you think? We can't do it. Imagine being able to defeat the one who holds death's power. That's what Jesus did. That's what God with us means Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Christmas is good news because of Good Friday. Don't lose that. Don't miss that in your Christmas celebrations and in your songs and in your traditions. Don't forget that Jesus ain't still a baby. Jesus grew and Jesus died. And through his death, he defeated the one who has the power of death. The manger was simply a prelude to the cross. Jesus was born to die. Verse 15 tells us that through his death, Jesus delivered us from slavery. He delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I think there's at least two senses in which we're enslaved. One is exactly as the writer here says, that that through the fear of death. Because we all know that it's coming. It can't be avoided. We can't get it out of the way. We can't get it all the way out of our minds because no matter what we do, we're aware that one day it's an inevitable reality. It will come. And we don't know when it'll be. And so we buckle seatbelts. And we put kids in infant car seats. And we lock our doors. 
And we make sure that we don't have gas leaks and things in our house. We do all that. Why? Because we know that if we don't do that stuff, we might die. Death is coming. It's inevitable. And we take measures to keep ourselves safe because we're afraid of death. At the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. There's a fear of death, and we're enslaved, the writer of Hebrews says. We're enslaved through our fear of dying. It affects so much of what we do and how we live and how we make decisions and how we plan for the future. Our fear of death is always there. But Jesus destroyed the power of death. Jesus identified the devil as the one who had the power of death, and he kicked him to the curb, destroyed him, defeated him, and says, death doesn't have power over you anymore, right? You don't have to be afraid of death anymore. Now, are we still going to die? Yeah, because that's a, part, a leftover part of the curse that sin brought into the world. You eat of the fruit, you die, right? That's what happens. So we die but just as Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Are we going to die? Yeah, but are we really going to die? Not a chance. We're going to live forever. Are we gonna, are our bodies going to end up in a grave at some point? Yes. Are they going to stay there? Nope. We're going to be raised. Through his death, he has delivered us from slavery. And Jesus also told us in John chapter 8 that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin is our master. And sin and death work together in such a way that one leads to the other, right? The wages of sin is what? Death, right? The wages of sin is death. And so I practice sin. What do I get in return? Death. That's how this works. And we're all sinners, that's the bad news. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, if we've all sinned and the wages of sin is death, that means we're all going to die. We all have death coming to us. But Jesus stepped in, got in the way, interrupted death and said, no, not for these, not for the ones who place their lives and their souls and their eternities in me. Not for the ones who say, I'm with Jesus. I'm trusting his life and obedience and his death in my place and his resurrection for mine. Jesus stands in the way and delivers us from slavery. Do you wrestle with guilt and shame in your life over your sin? Are you burdened with the fear that God is angry with you? That one day your sins are going to find you out? Are you afraid of what may happen after you die? Where you'll spend eternity? Listen to those words of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. God with us means you have an empty grave. Because Jesus came, took on humanity and conquered death by himself dying, by subjecting himself to death and destroying the one who has the power of death. So that we don't have to be afraid of it anymore. Because even when I die, I'm going to live. The fourth and final thing that this passage tells us that God with us means is that you have 
a merciful helper. You have a merciful helper. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, that's us, in every respect. In every respect. Let's pause there for a second. He was made like us in every respect. He's not just God in a, in a human-looking shell. Right? He didn't just appear to be human, but really, he really wasn't subject to any of the weaknesses and limitations that come with humanity. He was made like his brothers in every respect. Body, right? He's got a human body. He's subject to limitations in space and sickness. Think about Jesus with a cold or a stomach bug, right? That happened. He was fully human. Now, I hate to, like... Uh, correct a, a well-loved Christmas carol, Away in a Manger. That's got that verse that says, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. With little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Like he's such a sweet and holy and innocent infant that he doesn't even cry when a cow wakes him up from his nap. I don't think so. He's all the way human. He's human just like we are in every respect. I think a cow interrupting his nap would probably lead to some crying. Just going to speculate that. His body... His mind. He had to grow in understanding. He had to learn. Can you imagine Joseph and Mary like teaching Jesus like, I don't know what, math, uh, basic language, sentence structure. He had to grow and understand and come into a, a developed understanding of who he even is and what God sent him to do. All of that without giving up his godness. Philippians 2 tells us that. He was, he was in the form of God. He, but he didn't count it something to be held on to, and so he emptied himself. That doesn't mean he stopped being God. It just means he limited himself voluntarily for a time as he experienced the weakness and brokenness of humanity. Growth and maturity and weakness and tired muscles and exhaustion and needing to sleep, all of that stuff. Even needing to eat food. God didn't need food, right? He is life in itself. He's not going to starve if he doesn't eat. But as a human being, he did. He had to eat. So he was made like us in every respect, with one important exception, which the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's the one distinction. Jesus is not like us in that he didn't sin, never failed. Never broke God's command without sin. But he was made like his brothers in every respect. Why? Verse 17 of chapter 2. So that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, a high priest was simply the one who represented the people of God before God. So to, for Jesus to be our high priest, he's the one who on our behalf pleads our case to God the Father. That's essentially what that means. So Jesus, the Son of God, goes to God the Father and he says, these people are with me. Their sins are covered because they're in me. They've trusted in me. My life and death and resurrection is applied to them. So they're with me. That's what Jesus is doing as our high priest. But he's not just a, an effective high priest or just even a faithful high priest. He's a merciful high priest. Why is he merciful? He feels our pains, and he acts to relieve them. Now, this is not like Bill Clinton, you know, I feel your pain. Like, nobody believes that Bill Clinton cared, but Jesus cares. 
Jesus feels our pains. How? Because he experienced them. God with us means that Jesus took on humanity and experienced our pain and our grief and our suffering and our loneliness and our sorrow and our sickness and the death of loved ones. He experienced it. So he feels it with us. He knows what it's like. The last part of verse 17 says that he made propitiation for our sins. That's a snappy word, right? Everybody singing songs about propitiation? Propitiation is a fancy word, but it's really important. It means satisfaction. It means the demands have been met. So to say that Jesus propitiated or made propitiation for our sins, what he's saying is he took our sins out of the way and he paid for them. The righteous, holy standard that stood against us because of our sin, Jesus covered it. Jesus took care of it. Jesus satisfied that demand so that that's no longer in the way. There's no longer this sin barrier between me and God the Father because Jesus covered it. And I have access to God. That's what it means that he made propitiation for our sins. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he experienced the same weaknesses and temptations that we face, he feels for us, and he's able to help us. You know, when you've experienced, this is like this in our lives too, when you've experienced a particular pain or struggle you're able to identify with somebody else in, that, in a similar situation, right? That same kind of struggle. So maybe it's the loss of a loved one. You can come alongside someone and say, you know, I've lost a loved one too. I know what it's like. Just put an arm around them. Maybe it's, uh, you know, a, a chronic medical issue, just constant pain or this nagging health thing that we just can't figure out. Maybe you've been in that boat, and you can come alongside somebody that's struggling and suffering in that same way and say, man, I have suffered like that too. Maybe it's a particular sin pattern. You know, I've struggled with that particular temptation as well. Let me help you. Here's what worked for me. Here's how I found some victory or some growth. When your personal experience of pain and weakness enables you to understand your fellow sufferer in a unique way, and you're able to enter into their struggle and help them in ways that someone who hasn't experienced the same things simply could not do, right? It's one thing for me to say, man, I'm really sorry that you lost your loved one. It's another thing for somebody who has lost a loved one to come into that pain and say, I know what this feels like. I'm just going to be with you. I'm just going to be an ear for you, just a shoulder. It's a different level of help, a different level of ministry. And this is how Jesus can help us. This is why Christmas changes everything. He jumped down into the hole so that he could help us out of it. Are you tempted? He's been there. He's experienced it. He's withstood the temptation. And he's with you in yours. Call on him. Ask for his help. Lord, I'm tempted. I want to sin. Stop me. Help me. Call on him. You don't have to succumb to that burst of anger that's rising in your heart. If you're tempted to yell at your child or, or overreact to something, some inconvenience, you don't have to succumb to that. 
Call on Jesus. He's dealt with it. He's experienced it. You don't have to share the juicy gossip that you just learned. You don't have to. You're not a slave to that anymore. You don't have to visit that website that you know is forbidden and is harmful for you. You don't have to click on it. You don't have to act on the desire that you had to flirt with the woman at the office that's not your wife. You don't have to succumb to those desires and those temptations because Jesus was tempted just like you are. And he's able to help you in your temptation. Call on him. Look to him. Let's read these verses in chapter 4 one more time. Verses uh, 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, here's the response to that. Okay, so Jesus was tempted like we are. He's never sinned. So here's what we should do. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Not just the throne of holiness. Not just the throne of perfection. Not just the throne of power and authority. The throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's why Christmas is good news. That's what God with us means. He's with us, not just in this theoretical, isolated sense of, oh yeah, he became a human 2,000 years ago, and so we share that in common. He's with you in the trenches. He's with you in your temptation. He's with you in your suffering. Maybe you just feel miserable. You know what? Jesus knows what it's like to feel miserable. I'm willing to, to bet and argue that Jesus probably suffered more than you ever have. He knows what it's like. And he wants to be there. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. You're not alone in that suffering. You're not alone in that struggle. You're not alone in the temptation. You're not alone in your weakness. He's with you. So Christmas is good news because of the reality of God with us. And God with us is good news because it means you have a perfect Savior. And because you have a proud brother. You have an empty grave, and you have a merciful helper. Don't forget that this Christmas.